and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them. Welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Today I'm interviewing Kat Lane. Kat is a practicing lawyer with over 23 years' experience. With 17 years as a community lawyer and tireless consumer advocate in the area of credit, debt, insurance, privacy, and credit reporting, she was for many years the principal lawyer at Financial Rights Legal Centre, a strident advocate for the, for the consumers she represented, willing to call out anyone who she thought was trying to rip off the vulnerable in the community. Beside her role as a fearless advocate, she has authored numerous policy submissions to government, appeared before Senate inquiries and royal commissions, delivered hundreds of community legal education sessions, and of course spoken to many journalists about what industry and government need to do to improve the outcomes for consumers in the financial services area. Hi, Kat. Hey, Loretta. Um, so in 2000, before we start, I, uh, when I was doing some research about you, um, there wasn't much online and we might go into that a bit further on, but there was an article in 2011, there was an article written by Conrad Walters um, for um, on ID protection and he starts the article by writing, with her long chestnut hair, lawyer Catherine Lane mightn't look much like a Luke Skywalker but that's the name she gives to nosy retailers who needlessly demand personal details. I don't know if I would have chosen Luke Skywalker as a description for you, or is that just that you're a huge fan of Star Wars? Um, huge fan, but I often use anecdotes for Star Wars for various, uh, all the time, for various circumstances. I refer to lenders trying to do Jedi mind tricks. I uh, talk about the battle of evil. I use the Death Star all the time. So it's just been an enormous source of anecdotes for me because mainly because everybody's seen it. I quite like the first film <laughs> many years ago <laughs> when I was eight. Yeah. Uh, but since then it's gone into a hole as, as, some, of, as some of your many listeners who uh, may listen, have watched many of the Star Wars movies have realised that it's now not very good. Um, <laughs> except I've, I've never would have picked you for Luke Skywalker. <laughs> well, I'm a woman for a start. I've, obviously I'd like to be Princess Leia. She's the first role model I saw on screen who was just like a completely action hero so and woman and and in, and like a princess and willing to go out and fight and lead so yeah I would go for Leia not Luke. Well I've I've known you from um 
for many years now and besides being incredibly passionate about work, you are also very entertaining, as I can already see, um, which may have been a trial for your parents growing up. So how was it growing up in the, I was going to say Lane household, but I suspect that might be your married name. I've never been married. I've always kept my name. Oh. My children have my name. <laughs> I, I have no intention of ever getting married. <laughs> I, I, uh, well, I, I, I often say to people I can't mate in captivity and uh, all those things, um, but, like, I, I don't see it as something I will ever do. Um, because it's not something I'm a, I'm a pretty I mean you might not know this about me but I'm a pretty serious feminist and uh, for me marriage isn't necessarily excellent for women so I again defend people to do whatever they want to but it's not right for me and isn't it because I just uh, because even though I was married at one stage I always kept my married name but my children have um their father's last name and I think that was a very even if you were going to go outside the norm you might keep your own name but often your children ended up with the, your partner's name but that wasn't the case in the Catherine Lane household. No absolutely not I'm a matriarch <laughs> a little matriarch <laughs> a very tidy little matriarchal outpost in my house. <laughs> So what was it like for your parents having to deal with uh, with a Catherine in their in their household or were they all a bit um entertaining and strident about their views? Uh look I'm one of those children who is more like my brother and nothing like my parents. So the uh the, the my brother and I were just constantly I think we think we're very funny. Our parents are not as funny. They try. Well, they did try, uh, but we were very funny. I mean, it was just one of those situations where your parents are quite different from your children. So they, I'm not sure if they got the children. <laughs> they didn't get like them. They got completely different children who were, um, you know, fairly <laughs> talked back and, uh, and uh, generally difficult and opinionated and, of course, comedians. Is that why you decided? Oh. Okay, and is that why you decided to be a lawyer, because you could argue and were a comedian? Uh, no. The reason I, I – no, no, I didn't, I didn't ever really want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a philosopher. <laughs> so I wanted to sit around uni and sit under the tree and consider whether we all exist or not. I uh, wrote my final paper in philosophy on solipsism where I decided that you couldn't prove anyone else exists. In fact, you could only prove my mind exists. So um, I, you know, I love philosophy. Um, I only became a lawyer because I had, a, I had to get a job because I was so, I was just broke at uni and I got a job um, as a paralegal and as a consequence I got stuck in legal work as a job but it wasn't, wasn't my hopes and dreams but I, I suspect um, I, I knew I was going to be always okay at it because I was always outraged about social justice issues. Uh, so obviously that moves into being a lawyer. And, of course, also I love administration. I like moving paper around or files around and whatnot so, um, and writing letters. So actually I think I'm possibly 
shouldn't have been a lawyer at all, which is a little bit weird, given I'm, you know, people say, oh, I'm so passionate about it. But really, I'm a writer and a philosopher who just went off to try and get earn some money because I had debts. Ah. <laughs> but I thought you did. So did you do your major in philosophy? I thought it was in psychology. Uh, double major. Back then you could. So psychology and philosophy. Of course, all the stuff I learned in psychology is now wrong. So that was a bit disappointing. Um, but uh, so they had it all wrong. I mean, all that personality theory, social psych, psychoanalysis, <laughs> not evidence-based science. So uh, that was sad. But, of course, the beauty with philosophy is that, of course, you know, that's just based on logic and reasoning and it can't just all be wrong like uh, you can with psychology. Yeah. So why did you go off to Sydney Uni? Like why Sydney University for your first degree? Oh, really easy because I wanted to get out of my small country town. I was desperate to leave. We only had one little cinema and I, um, and I wanted to go and be amongst people who I thought were smart. <laughs> so where did you grow up, Kat? Well, all over the place, but when, when I was finishing my high school, I was in um, Nelson Bay, which is a small town past Newcastle on the seaside. It, but it's a beautiful place, um, yeah. Nelson's Bay, really. Well, it's Nelson Bay. Possibly. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's beautiful, but, like, when you're a young person and you're thinking about heavy things and wanting to really get out there and um, have really interesting conversations it's not the place to to go to get because now I don't care but back when I was a teenager I really wanted to have you know the tough conversations about why are we here and you know why why are we all doing stuff and what's the meaning of life and you know 42 by the way but yeah all of that wasn't available at Nelson Bay so I immediately wanted to go to a university in Sydney and I wanted to go to Sydney University. And I mean, that's why. Why? Why it's Sydney? Aesthetically There's pleasing other, university. Yeah. Um, it wasn't because of any other reason except it had really lovely sandstone and a lovely quadrangle and a jacaranda tree because it was just gorgeous. That if you sit in the philosophy department, it's like you're in Brideshead Revisited. And it that's exactly what I want to do. It was, it was all shallow stuff. I just wanted to sit in the in the, the standstone thing and taught philosophy with other people who, were, you know, thought about a lot. So that's what I wanted at the time. Isn't that funny because I went to Sydney University and I chose it because I thought it was the best university. <laughs> well, we know now that there's not much in it between universities. It's really the cal calibre of the person, not the university that matters. Um, but... You know, at the time I thought it was important, but, of course, now I say to everybody, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, just go where you well, want. That's, I mean, that's really, that's really good advice, actually, for young lawyers because I think it probably helps you get your first job, but beyond that, does it really matter where you went to university? Well, it did nothing for me, like not a thing. So, um, mm. except, you know, enjoy, I enjoyed learning there a lot. Um, but, like, for my mm. year or anything, my university didn't matter stuff. Nobody's asked me about it forever. You're the first person who's asked in, like, 20-odd years. So 
I don't think anybody cares or well, is interested. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so either. But your, uh, you were saying your first job was with the bank because you were broke and that's why you went to the bank and got a job as a paralegal. But how did you get that job? Good, interesting story. So my parents had lost all their money in the recession and they cut me off and left me penniless. And so I was sitting around at Strathfield, I think it was. Yeah, Strathfield Station in inner West Sydney. And I um, was broke. I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing left. I, I, I tried to apply for Oz study. I applied for Cole's job and they rejected me because I was at uni. And I saw an ad on the window of the bank branch in Strathfield. And I took down the number and applied. And I had to have a medical check and do a test, would you believe? Um, and then I got a job as a part-time, um, ah, what was it called? Some sort of paralegal job doing doing um, uh, mortgage documents for bank customers. So, oh, so you started straight off doing mortgage. Yeah. So you started straight off. In doing financial mortgages. services, in a sense. Yeah, I've never done anything else. I've, and, I've done nothing else. Financial services. So what made 30. you then go? All right. So what made you go from uh, being the paralegal with your double major in philosophy and psychology and go, oh, I think law might be a good idea? Well, that was easy. Um, but they were willing to pay for the degree and that was the one that I thought was best. So the bank paid for my Bachelor of Arts when I started there and then they paid for my law degree and then they paid for my College of Law. Thank you, bank. Then they wouldn't pay for my Master's and then I left. Oh, so you already had... (laughs) (laughs) That was a a straw that cracked the camel's back. Well, there were many straws. There were many straws for me in the bank. I mean, like they're they're back in the 80s and 90s. This particular bank was fairly problematic. Um, It it had a lot of redundancy runs. It had people coming in and firing people all the time. It was a pretty unhappy group. That's not true of the bank now, but it was back then. And so I was just one of the unhappy group of people who eventually got sick of it. Um, Not before they done a huge amount of stuff um, where I, they pay for my degrees and put me through college and given me a job as a lawyer so I could get experience. I mean, they were good to me. It's just at the time I was young and I was in my early 20s and I was pretty annoyed with being treated pretty badly. So I, I have mixed feelings about the whole thing. I mean, they did really help. I mean, they gave me a home loan when I was early 20s at a really low interest rate when the interest rates were 17%. So, like, you know, they gave me the oh, free wow. benefits were fantastic. I mean, like, I, I, I can only say thank you for all that. And I think my work was good. It's just uh, my personality wasn't great with uh, being told what to do that didn't make much sense to me. But anyway. So uh, you were boisterous even then. Oh, look, I, I just spent my whole life getting told off for being too loud or talking too much or it's just been an endless life of this is where I finally found my home is like working from home because, like, I just don't want to hear it anymore. I'm not going to change. <laughs> you either want the genius who knows what everything or you don't. you just got to put up with the talkative nature of cat. 
And did you end up getting your masters at some yep. stage? Yeah, I'm a masters. That's what. That's what. It, oh, I mean, good. it's it's only been useful. The masters is not worth doing, but it's been useful for occasionally where I have to pull it out to get something. Like, you know, I say, like, if I want to teach at the uni, it helps. And other than that, it's not any use whatsoever except for learning. Mm, which so obviously I, I you have a Loretta, don't do your masters. That's all I'm giving you. Don't do your masters. Okay. <laughs> Thank don't you. bother. Just well, you can move on. <laughs> <laughs> I knew when I was young and I knew I was going to do it. So like, I just wanted to be able to pull it out and say, look, I've got one. So you might want to give me a job. Now I don't care whether anybody gives me a job. So I, um, I uh, don't care about it at all. I don't pull it out much now. Oh, good on you. So what what do you think the bank taught you? Oh, tons. Um, look, the, the big stuff that's seen me through my whole life was I didn't realise at the time, I've got to say, because I was 20s, 20s and I started the bank when I was 19. I, mean, I was a teenager um, and, I like, I was always immature anyway. I mean, like, I just, you know, struggled to mature. I'm still struggling. This the whole maturity thing's a little bit weird. But... When I was in my 20s, I mean, like, I didn't realise I was learning a tonne, but I actually learned so much about how banks work, what they care about, what they don't care about, how to work out whether you're properly secured or not, how to make commercial lending decisions. All the people I work with who haven't had that experience, it's it's been, you know, it's been huge for me because I just understand. I mean, I like understanding things, and the bank just put me in a position where I understand stuff. I understand why they do things. I understand why they don't. I understand where their pressure points are. I understand how to wear them down. I understand how to um, get them to say yes. <laughs> oh, good, good. So you left because you didn't like being told what to do. Is that right? Well, that was always, I was always whinging about that. I mean, like, I was always whinging for a while at the bank. I mean, they just got very annoyed with me. Um, interestingly enough, one of the people who was in charge of me in the latter bits where I decided to leave ended up being a big debt collector lawyer. So he ended up being, like, on the other side of me. I kept coming across him for years after um, where he was a debt collection lawyer. He was just a big debt collection lawyer who left the bank to be running a debt collection practice. And he was just on the other side of me in lots of things. And I'm sure he's forgotten me, but I hadn't forgotten him. And I I took some glee in the fact he ended up being a debt collector because that's really sad. <laughs> and he was a but it might have been quite appropriate. <laughs> well, I'm sure he's made lots of money. He probably suited him. <laughs> I'm sure he's made tons of money being evil, but like he is still evil. So <laughs> uh, he will remain. But so we definitely won't mention his name. No, no. no. Good. I'm glad about that. he's probably, I, right. to, I haven't seen him for a few years, so he could be consigned to anywhere. I don't know where he's gone. But uh, yes, it's funny, small world. He could actually have had a change. Huh? He could have had a change of heart, Kat. I don't he know. Could he could have had a change of heart. It's like I'll get my Turned Star Wars over. reference out. I mean, he could have gone to the, gone from the dark side to the light. I don't know. He was definitely dark side. He stayed dark <laughs> side for a while, and then he could have gone to the light. <laughs> oh, well, well, we'll 
um, I might have to do some research after this and find out where he has gone. No, no, you won't be able to find so it. So how did give you enough information to even work it out? All right. <laughs> okay. So how did you – you went straight from the bank to the fund, um, to the Consumer Credit Legal Service, did you, no, or did you go no. somewhere else first? No, no, I finished my master's and I had two small children, so I looked after them for a little while and sat around and got out, got, felt better. So I did a job as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, I just took a breather. All right, and so how did you get the job with the Consumer Credit Legal Service? Well, this is this is the interesting part. I only applied for one job, and that was it, and I got it. I don't. I've I've only ever applied for. So like, you are, yeah. I've never applied for any other jobs that I haven't got. Like it's really, really. I like I'm struggling to think of where I didn't get a job. Like I applied for the bank, and I got that. And I applied for consumer credit. I I don't apply for multiple jobs. I've only ever applied once, and I de- I'm never going to again. It's finished. Okay? So the uh, the yeah, so my application for job stuff is pretty close to 100 percent on no other job applications. So <laughs> I don't know why that happens. Okay. So, so why a community legal centre? Oh, because I was outraged about everything. Um, before I left the bank, I was already, because um, like I knew all this stuff from being a lawyer at the bank, so I knew that the I knew all about the credit code, and I already knew a ton about credit law and um, financial services and banking law, and I had a ton of knowledge, even though I was even a junior lawyer, because I'd been going for so long, I had really specific knowledge in that area. And I took that knowledge and started complaining about people who didn't comply with the law while I was on leave. I managed to get one bank to pull all its ads because I complained that they complained they'd failed to comply with the credit laws. And that was while I was on leave. It wasn't the bank I was working That was while you were on maternity leave or... Just no, I wasn't on maternity leave. I was just, I just resigned and I was sitting on leave and yeah. I got so annoyed by somebody not complying with the law, I made a complaint about them and got all their ads pulled So until they complied. <laughs> so, so I knew this was what I wanted to do. Like I knew that that was like my so thing. So you already <laughs> had early success before you went off to the community legal centre. Yeah, I already knew I was. I already knew I could do stuff. But not only that, I knew a lot of information, but from the other side. So I had to learn it all again from you know a consumer perspective. But uh, no, I was in a really well place to just learn it. So yeah, I already knew I had and because- an raging social justice agenda. <laughs> <laughs> What was your social? Actually, what was your social justice agenda before you went into? If you can remember that, before you went to the um, consumer credit legal service. Well, no. So there's two things here. So I'm always, I've always been political and opinionated on a wide range of issues. So it's the financial services issue was just my technical trade where I got outraged about particular financial services things. But I already, I always had this other interests in a whole heap of other things like, um, you know, poor people, women, uh, 
you know, privacy. I mean, privacy is something I've been doing for a long time now. Um, all that human rights stuff. I mean, basically, I want to be a human rights lawyer. And um, I have been a human rights lawyer. And couldn't, and couldn't get a job there. <laughs> no, well I, well, I never applied, so I don't know. That's like, you know what I mean? I, 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 did, I, I don't apply, Lorena, to everything. Um, but, like, I did want to be a human rights lawyer, and that's why I've kept going on privacy for so long, and I also think money is a human rights issue. So I uh, I just think access to money, being able to use, being able to not be ripped off on money, those sorts of things are all human rights issues, and I've always thought that, even before anybody even mentioned that it might be. Mm. And so how did you build, like, do you know, you would have come in there as a... Um, relatively junior lawyer, having been on the other side, so to speak. So how did you build that coalition of consumer voices to take your, you know, agenda further? Or well, was there someone that really helped? No, no one helped. Uh, I wish that was true. <laughs> no one helped. No, I, I used to joke we were on the D team to start. Like, you know, you couldn't try to work up from D to C team to B team. <laughs> like, can we get on the field? Like, there's all these people drifting around in Victoria. They there was almost no communication when we started, and uh, like, I might and one of my people there refused to do debt at the time. They only wanted to do banking, and I couldn't work out how that could work. <laughs> and so there was crazy stuff to start with. I used to scratch my head for those few years. So that's because there was a community, uh, well, there was a credit legal service in, in in Victoria at the time and one in Western Australia, but that was it. But yes. we weren't, they weren't really talking to each other. No, no one was talking to each other. Well, we weren't from New South Wales talking to anybody particularly. We were talking to a few people in New South Wales, like occasionally Redfern and a few other things, but there wasn't a you know, a well-talked-out group. Um, and not only that, even it wasn't clear to me that we were in the group. We had to work up to it, so it took a long time. And there's still some community legal centres across Australia that are still trying to get from D team to C team to B teams. So it's not a simple situation. So how do you, I mean, it's a nice way to go from the D team to the A team, but how do you think, you manage that what oh, do you think some of the strategies were yeah you have to talk to people I mean like it, it's it's just like you know like I started talking to you so we I started talking to you and Catherine and started talking and doing stuff together and it was it was good and the same with the Victorian folk and then it keeps changing around I mean when I was started it was like Chris Field who's now the Ombudsman in WA, he was the Consumer Law Centre Victoria principal mm. and he, he, I mean, talking to him was a start. Um, there was just lots of talking, talking about how we do things, trying, and that's all gone a lot further now, which is great. Um, but, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time talking to you guys as well. I, I was very conscious of my borders. Oh, <laughs> my borders were... Um, <laughs> was uh, Victoria, so I had ACT. I spent a bit of time working on ACT. And I also did some work on Queensland. Um, so my borders were really interesting. <laughs> which was, uh, that's where it started for me, is, is really thinking about 
who's closest, who's your closest neighbours, um, and talking to them. And do you think, like, that was what maintains your networks, that talking, or is it more than that? Oh, I think it's 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 absolutely talking. You've got to reach out to them all the time on whatever you're doing policy-wise and say, what are you saying? Because otherwise you get this ridiculous situation where you're all saying something different, which is not the best situation, but it also means that you have to compromise sometimes. I mean, you sometimes get your neighbours don't agree with you and, you, you know, you've got slight differences. And the better you get at it, you, the more you iron those out. In other words, somebody's better argument should prevail. Um, but it doesn't mm. always work that way. It's... It's, yeah, I agree. And sometimes it's been really interesting because you'll have some new player come in and there's an agreed position and then the new player goes, well, I don't know if I agree with this position or says, well, I want to make up my own mind, which was once said to me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, <laughs> You're just going to undermine this whole process. It's really important, I think, that when consumers speak on the whole, they speak as one voice. Absolutely. But, look, the, th the thing is and the, that's the hard bit is to accept other people's well-reasoned positions. So the biggest problem you have is somebody says, oh, that doesn't sound right to me. Well, you know, say what you've – you've got to be able to say what your position is and why. With good reasons, like as not in not the vibe. I feel it in the force. It's got to be actually reasoned. So if you if you if you can put your reasons up, then good. And if you can't, then well, you need to back off because, like, you haven't got reasons for your decision. So I think it's just like any good lawyer should always have good reasons behind why they're doing something. Um, but when it comes to policy work for consumer advocacy. You need to have good reasons on why you're doing it. Um, if you don't, you'll have a, a problem because you can't explain it, you can't sell it. I was going to just list a few of the campaigns that you've been involved in over the years. Um, there were the, I, I was trying to think, go back through my memory bank and think about them all, but these were some of the ones that I came up with. There was the 48% interest rate. CAP campaign, responsible lending laws, the ban on unsolicited credit card offers and limit increases, the expansion of credit reporting in Australia, junk insurances, defining flood in insurance policies and advocating for one complaint scheme in financial services. What is the one campaign that was the most fun? Oh, look, they all ebbed and waned depending on the fun factor, <laughs> I've got to say. There were bleak moments in all of them and then there was good times from, you know, from payday lending. I mean, you're one of the ones, people, who's been with me basically since the beginning of that little campaign. Um, and I remember at least at one stage in the early 2000s, we, you and me, this is just you and me and possibly Catherine, we're the only people in Australia wanting a 48% per annum cap. Everybody will set us adrift. <laughs> we're alone. <laughs> and I was sitting there going, I'll bring you up, I'm sure. I remember saying, look, oh, Loretta, we're alone on the 48% per annum cap. <laughs> How is that possible? And, yeah, and then they all came back, which was a good little thing and then of course we we haven't got there yet so that's great but we've got 
much no. further along, much further along. Um, but I remember there were bleak years where we were alone. So you can be in a campaign where you just end up alone, like you're alone in your campaign. You've got like one neighbour who's backing you and then the other neighbours have left you go. And then, yeah, then then you can have everybody on board and you can't even get a seat at the table because there's no, so many people crowded onto the wagon. <laughs> you're thrown. You're not even there and you've been since 2001. So it, it, it's, a, it's amazingly... Um, it's amazingly uh, sometimes soul-destroying, and yet then you get somewhere and it's good at that point. Uh, but you just got to believe in what – I mean, again, it goes back to reasons. I mean, the reason we wanted a 48% cap was that the cost of credit was too high on these things, and it was causing huge amount of consumer harm, including you had the ridiculous mm-hmm. thing with diamond selling and all. Oh, there was just so much just sham stuff. To oh, that was, oh, that was just – that was a wonderful thing, the sale of diamonds to avoid the cat when we did get a cat. Well, no, no, my, my favourite isn't even the I've diamonds. I've forgotten about that. You've forgotten the diamonds. Yeah, we no, never my... saw the diamonds, did we? No, no, we never saw it. Did you ever see the diamond? No, I never saw the diamond. I wanted to see the diamond. I was going to frame it and put it in my office. But anyway, the 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 thing is that you you forgot my favourite. My favourite shenanigan was the one where they sell you financial literacy videos to get your payday loan. That was, to me, that, was, that made no sense. That was just like utterly, like wickedly evil. I mean, like sending you financial literacy videos when if you were even remotely financially literate, you wouldn't go to these people. So, <laughs> so like the irony was just, was it? just too much for me some days. <laughs> Uh, there's been so many funny things, hasn't there? Yeah, it's ridiculously. There's been, like, I, I wouldn't have got through being a lawyer without humour because, like, there's just too many days where you're just sitting there going, you're kidding. You are absolutely kidding me, particularly with payday lenders. I mean, like, it's like just endless shuffling around the law that was just, can only be described as just really disreputable, not fit to be anything behaviour um, mm. and, they'd, and they'd sit there and say to you look no how dare you criticise us we're good blokes and they're always blokes for some reason I don't know why it is and uh, but they're not good blokes they weren't you know as a general proposition they were absolutely seriously awful so and still are but they they really did think that they were doing a good thing for the community oh, and it was really hard yeah yeah. Uh, my favourite one was that they'd always go and say, look, uh, a client came in, he got a payday loan to buy an engagement ring for his fiancée, and I'm just sitting there going, really? How often does that happen? Really? Come on. I mean... <laughs> Would you really want to marry him? He's <laughs> <laughs> sitting there going, this financially ineptitude guy. Guys, going to condemn me to a life of payday loans. I think I will leave him and the just not go ahead. So I, I think I think that's yeah. It's, it's it's completely worrying what they think is going on. Of course, most of my clients with payday loans got loans for living expenses and debts and things like that, which is a really poor way to spend the money. It is, you know, one of the things is. 
that you can either cry because it's just so upsetting or you do have to have a sense of humour about it because you, ca- you, ca- you can't do it otherwise, I think. You can't do this job because there's always so much sadness and um, in the stories that you hear on a daily basis. Yeah. Oh, look, I I mean, I guess I'm as prepared for a pandemic as I can be because I've had clients where everything's gone wrong. I mean, like I'm literally sitting there going, that is crazy. And it changes your worldview. In other words, you never think after you've been a lawyer for a long time for people who are low income, disadvantaged or whatever it is, um, you can never think that um, that one thing, bad thing happens and another bad thing can't happen. Like people have a string of horrific things happen to them and you're sitting there going, well, I can never think that again. I can't ever believe, like, that there's some, you know, lucky thing that means that, you know, something bad can't happen to you. This is this is the thing is that you get into this, when you deal with people who are struggling all the time, I mean, you just got to give, give away this idea that people, you know, you can't end up there. That's that's the thing. And this this business where everybody thinks I'm a have, therefore I can never be a have not. I mean, it doesn't take much to go wrong and then suddenly it just, it can all go wrong in a row. And you can just make a series of shocking decisions and you can lose your income, you lose your house and everything. And, um, and you, you're just really aware from being a lawyer that, that um, there's people out there who really struggle. And, you know, I mean, this epidemic or pandemic at the moment just shows how close people are away from, you know, really suffering severe financial hardship without any fault of their own, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, and not only that, it, it's brought, this whole thing has brought out the deserving poor and undeserving poor argument yet again, which is there's no such thing as undeserving poor. There's, there's people who've lost their job. If it's due to a pandemic or you just got downsized or you lost it because of whatever, there is no real difference between mm. those people. This business where that we're making out they're different is just not helpful and really quite dangerous because there is there is just isn't any difference. No, I don't think so either. But anyway, let's get back to what we were talking about because I wanted to find out with your campaigns, you've talked about what you thought was the most fun or that all of them were a bit of fun, but where do you think in those campaigns over the last 20 years or so you've had the most impact or there's been the most impact? Well, there's two views on this and this is a difficult one. So there's there's a view that I think can quite reasonably run be run um and i'll give you an example in a minute but it's i'll, I'll, I'll call it the raiders of the lost ark view for, i'll explain why in a minute which <laughs> is that that everything we did seemed like it was something at the time but it probably wasn't because the royal commission did a lot more um and so the reason i call it the raiders of the lost ark point of view which is that when uh, Indiana Jones goes through all the Rays of the Lost Ark, he actually doesn't make any impact on anything that happens in that movie. He's in it, but he doesn't change the outcome. So we're all in it. We're all Indiana Jones. But the big question is, is did we make a substantial impact in the policy space? Well, the answer is arguably yes, but also arguably no, which is a tough call when you're a person who works on these things. Um, so if you'd asked me before the Royal Commission, I would say, oh, yeah, we did 
well, we got hardship in DDR, we got worked on the payday lending stuff. We huge one was getting all the EDR schemes together. Um, all of that is huge work. So yes, on that view, but no, on the other views, we were all sitting there watching what was systemic, serious misconduct from the banks. Um, and it didn't get sorted out to the Royal Commission. And neither ASNIC nor us as consumer advocates did a huge amount about it. So in that sense, we were ineffective. But i got to tell you what gives me. <laughs> the Raiders of the Lost Ark problem is a big problem. But what gives me solace is not the policy campaign stuff because at the end of the day, being a lawyer, you don't have to be a lawyer to be a policy campaigner. Being a lawyer for me is about helping people. Like all those clients, thousands and thousands of clients I've helped and worked and ran their case or gave them advice or told them it was going to be okay because and why. But, you know, all that is what sustains me now. I mean, policy all rolled on and you, you always have a raise the lost arc argument. But um, the issue is that, you know, what really I did that was profound was helping all those people. So all the systemic stuff, yes, great, and it's good that's happened, but it's a good question and it could be a long dinner party conversation if we're ever not socially distanced anymore um, about, <laughs> about whether what impact we actually had. But, the, the you know, so there's a lot of losses in there and there's some wins. And overall, I think that it's positive. But there is a raised lost argument, a lost arc argument, which is interesting. But I'm very, very, very glad for me that I did all those thousands of hours on actual people to help them with their money problems. And um, and I I don't have any doubt with that group that I transformed their lives um, one at a time. So the um, the that for me gives me. A huge amount of that. Oh, that's that's my. It's not the policy campaigns. It's, that's my 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 impact and yours is that it's helping people. Mm. And especially, you know, Kat, I must say, it's actually the ones that don't say thank you because they're so vulnerable that sometimes they don't even know what you've achieved for them, and you've done it anyway. I I. And sometimes they're so sweet, like, you know, when I have a card written to me that says, my dear lady or something like that, and I think to myself, it's just the loveliest thing to get those those sorts of little thank yous in their own way, in the way that they can do it. And sometimes people go, oh, really, Loretta? You know, somebody kisses you up their, your arm and says, I wasn't able to sleep, you know, last night and you've made such a difference in my life or I haven't been able to sleep for many nights. Um, there's no, you cannot get that satisfaction out of a policy win. Ever, ever. They're not even comparable in my view because my box of cards and all those people and the ones who cried and the ones who just, you could tell that I've just, it's just changed everything. That is just, that's an amazing thing. And it never gets not amazing. It's amazing. And um, particularly where the ones I've, I really had to pull it out to get there, like as in like I had to sit and think about it for hours. And those people didn't say thank you, but I had to sit and think how on earth am mm. I going to get, like for example, my blind person who can't lose her house because she knows her way around her house or, or you know, Aboriginal woman who was just gorgeous, had 12 people living in her house. I mean, like, I just think those things were 
easily my career highlights. Um, and it was those wins. Nobody's ever going to come to me and say, Kat, you, you know, you did all that. Nobody will. But I know that I made a huge difference in their lives, and that's by far the most satisfying thing. It is. I would agree with that. Hey, um, but I am going to ask you, who do you think was then the politician that you think has done the most for assisting vulnerable borrowers in the community and why? Oh, Maybe it was? I don't know. I, it's it's difficult. I mean, like, it, it, it seems to me that we, I couldn't name one because you get little wins here and there. Um, even from Liberal Party, I mean, like Labor Party, Liberal Party, occasionally you just get a little win, and it somehow crosses over. And then, and then you'll have the same party who does one thing really well, and then does another thing poorly. And um, so, for example, I thought that the, the Julia Gillard, the Gillard Rudd government, was transformative on credit. Um, they put through a huge amount of work, not just the credit, but NDIS, huge amount of stuff that was really important, and yet. We could not get payday lending stuff properly fixed with the minister at the time. And, you know, that was a disappointment. So you can have these great things and then there's going to be bits and pieces that are no good. And I, you know, but even the current Liberal Party, who won't put, down, put through the payday lending laws, but will um, do some work on super to protect people from ridiculous insurance and and small balances and things like that, which I think is positive. So it's very difficult. All right. So, well, an even more difficult question is, um, who do you think was the best industry leader then that you dealt with? Ah, that's a good question. Ah. <laughs> Maybe my Star Wars problem really did cause a lot of trouble where I was just seeing them as the group on the other side. Um, they were just a conglomerate on the other side, living on a planet somewhere. Who were just, but they look, there were some really good people in there. I mean, like it's not like I, you know, Star Wars analogies aside. I mean, I don't really see them as the Death Star. I just uh, they're, they're good people, but it ends up with poor outcomes sometimes. Like, you know, you can sit there dealing with the industry people and they say, and in fact, this is my biggest problem, is they say X, Y or Z and it sounds really positive and yet they were irresponsibly lending to <laughs> everyone. So do you know what I mean? Like I just I just found that dichotomy between that, that what they said and what they did as a, a giant difficulty for me um, and the Royal Commission brought that out. Mm. And so I'm I'm really starting into my wrap up questions where yeah. I do um you know normal sort of questions. So what I'm going to ask you this, which I ask most people, is what's the best thing your law degree has given you? Oh, just ability to practice. And I I tell legal law students that all the time. I mean, they do ask me, and I say, look, just get your practicing certificate and go and practice, because. Look, a lot of lawyers, a lot of people with a law degree never practice and even even a smaller amount never have a human client. They just have a corporate client. So a human client is a gift. That's what you were there for, to act for humans, people who need assistance with their legal stuff. And there aren't that many people who get to do as a lawyer, but they should count themselves lucky because a lot of people just end up with a corporation as their client. Um, 
And I say get your practicing certificate and actually do it. Being a paralegal is not the same as being a lawyer. You need to actually practice. Um, but look, the vast majority of people won't. Yes, uh, it's a, it, I, I feel very privileged being able to do that too, like actually practising as a lawyer and having clients and, you know, being on the side of, oh, uh, well. Good. Uh, it's good. You're in the light. You're in the light and you're in the dark. Come on. I'm not on the dark side. You're not on the dark side. I woke up one morning and I'm on the, I'm on the light. So what are you doing now, Kat? Oh, and what's your plan for the future? Oh, well, the best thing about me is I'm a consultant. So I do, uh, I work from home and I do whatever I like. So it varies enormously. Um, but I, I basically um, spend a lot of time sitting around doing bits and pieces of things and it suits me enormously. <laughs> Uh, I, I do a bit of teaching, I do a bit of this and that. And the, the one thing I didn't realise about consultants is you, you never know what they're doing because, you know, that's it's, it's sort of secret. They become like ASIO. So, they you know, they have clients, they don't tell you about them, they're ASIO. And I am, I've now turned into ASIO where I just, I am a consultant and I'm having a very, very, very good time being one. It must be hard, though, to not... Um you know, be on the front line sometimes of the of the advocacy that you're, you know, that you may be, you know, giving some advice to um, organisations about about how they should be doing running certain campaigns or... or um, I still give yeah. the odd a bit of advice to people, which is I enjoy. Um, but the, the, the big thing for me is I ended up in a community legal centre that became a giant call centre. And if I was saying to somebody about what to do, I would say don't work in those call centre situations. Um, do work as a proper community legal centre lawyer with face-to-face -face clients. Uh, I, you just end up, I mean, a call centre, it's like an X-Files episode. It just gets to be pretty awful eventually. Um, call centres have a bad reputation for a reason. And I look, at not to run down those people who do that job, but it's, you know, you've got to wake up one morning and say, oh, that's not for me. <laughs> um, but, like, I think the bit where you just have a face-to-face -face client and you act for them, fabulous. It always is going to be fabulous. So those community legal centre lawyers who get to do that, they're very lucky. Uh, actually, Kat, I, I would agree with that. Having mainly practised as someone who did not see clients face-to-face -face and having moved into having a face-to-face -face role, even though at the moment that's not the case. One, I think that telephone advice is a great avenue for a lot of people to access advice, but the most vulnerable in the community are still wanting and needing face-to-face -face services. There's no doubt about it. Well, not only that, in terms of the lawyer's satisfaction side of it, mm. it's so much better yeah. than a lawyer because you actually get a connection with the person. I know we're socially distanced now, but when we go back to actually being able to interact with our fellow human beings on a close level, it's it's an amazing thing when your client gives you a hug. 
it's an amazing thing where they you've got a you, you you're both sitting there you know sad together because it's difficult. You can't it, none of that stuff happens in a call center. It's it's got to be face to face, and that's the joy. And so in terms of satisfaction for the lawyer, I think it's a huge improvement to have face to face. Um, but people have got to have jobs, and I'm not going to judge them on their jobs. But uh, but from this lawyer's perspective, I think face to face is far superior. And 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 also like you want to avoid big organisations. Like I, when I worked at the bank, it was just big. You get you big and bureaucratic. Uh, whereas small community legal centres are just gorgeous. I, 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 you know, I ended up not in one, but I was in to start, and they're just the most gorgeous thing. I suspect, though, the increasing corporatisation of legal aid and community legal centres is going to be that you and me are going to reminisce about the good old days, well and truly once the good old days have gone. Well, I'm ho hoping they'll stay around for a little bit longer, Kat. But now, given your long-term interest in privacy and winner with Carolyn Bond of the Privacy Foundation's 2009 Smith Award for the Best Privacy Guard Guardian, what is a tip? And then joining the board some, year some years later, what is your big tip for protecting your own privacy? Uh, look, just get control of your personal information, and that means making sure that you know where stuff is going and not giving it over without a fight. So, and privacy is a human right, and we're now in a pandemic, and tracking is a problem. And I can only tell you why I got it in this in the first place, and this is why human rights matter, is it's when everything's tough, that people want to give them away, that they're the most important things in the world. They are those Fundamental liberties we expect as citizens are the most important things you can guard. So it's not just privacy, it's a whole heap of human rights. Um, you want to be able to not live in a police state. You don't want to be in a fascist state. You absolutely want freedoms and liberty. And you want basic human rights always looked after. And every lawyer should be making sure that happens. And in fact, every citizen, because we need to guard these things and, and it's eternal vigilance. And I'll never get off the Privacy Foundation because I'm a privacy advocate for life. <laughs> and so, Kat, if people want to connect with you, how do they do that given you are not on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter and you do not have a website? Well, interestingly, now, now. <laughs> interestingly enough, I'm not sure I want to connect with anyone. So, so I, 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 I'm actually just living my little life in my house, very happily socially distanced. Um, no, I've always been one of those people who, who's completely happy with just what I'm doing. And uh, if you if you can find me, good luck. So, if you're desperate to <laughs> ring Loretta, well, then you go and talk to me. You ring Loretta. Contact me on my website and, try and I'll and do my best to try and convince Kat <laughs> to connect with you. Hey, thanks, Kat. That was really wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too, Loretta. We should have conversations like this more often. <laughs> okay. See ya. Thank you for joining us on Lunching with Lawyers. If you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests, head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below. 
If you have suggestions, ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series, head to the Contact Us page on our website www.loretacreek.com.